0: Testing one, two, three, testing one, two, three. Hey guys, welcome back to Storytime Slayer. I am your host, Haley Lira, and today I have a juicy story for you. I have a story about a black widow. Her name was Sharon Nelson, and let me tell you guys, Sharon Nelson was a vixen. She was pretty, she had an excellent figure, and she knew how to swing her hips and shimmy those shoulders to make her titties bounce. She could be a hoot. But honestly, either you liked Sharon or you didn't. And most people didn't really like her. They were turned off by her blatant sexuality. She always dressed sexy, very form-fitting clothes, really short shorts. She constantly made sexual innuendos or talked about sex. And she was a super big flirt. But more than that, Sharon Nelson was a home wrecker. okay? She was not a woman that you could leave alone with your man because she would try to seduce him. And damn if she wasn't good at it. Before I get started, I just want to thank you so much for tuning into Storytime Slayer Podcast. If you wouldn't mind, please leave me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and swing by Storytime Slayer on Facebook or Story underscore Time underscore Slayer on Instagram. That is where I'm going to post all the videos, photos, and, you know, information coinciding with these case stories. Check it out. You guys buckle up because this story is like a dang Jerry Springer episode. Men were either completely entranced by Sharon and fell head over heels for her, or they were utterly repulsed by her. And if you weren't repulsed by her, you should be. Because Sharon used her assets and charm to break up marriages, even her own, take men for everything they had and then eventually she would solicit her longtime lover Gary who was also married with kids to kill two of her husbands. Sharon was very manipulative and controlling and we are going to dive right into the life and crimes of Sharon Lynn Nelson. Let's get started. Sharon was born July of 1945 into a very strict and devout Seventh-day Adventist family. I believe they're from North Carolina, but I'm not 100% sure. Now, Seventh-day Adventists, it is a Christian denomination that is a lot more conservative than today's modern Christians, and they actually believe Saturday to be the day of Sabbath. Now, Sharon's family in particular was pretty strict. She basically grew up without TV. They had one at first, but when Elvis shook his hips on the television, her dad threw that shit out. Um, There would be no bad influences through worldly things like TV or music. Her parents would actually take the part of the radio that made it work with them when they left the house just to ensure that the kids didn't hear anything like worldly. The children, meaning Sharon and her siblings, could not wear makeup, don accessories like jewelry, jewelry and accessories and makeup and flashy things is just not a part of the Seventh Day Adventist way of life. They also could not dress immodestly or drink caffeine. I don't know at what exact age, but when Sharon was fairly young, she met a man named Mike Fuller, and he was on his way to be a Seventh-day Adventist minister, which really impressed Sharon's parents. In fact, when Sharon last minute wanted to pull out of the marriage to Mike Fuller, her parents said, Uh, you need to do it that man's going places he's going to be a dang minister Sharon get your get get it together so Sharon ends up going ahead and marrying Mike Fuller now it's not long into the marriage before Sharon and Mike both have a few lapses of judgment and Sharon's first pregnancy is actually not even by Mike so Mike was not actually the father of the first child that Sharon and him had together. Her name was Rochelle. Mike did claim Rochelle and he raised her as his own, but she was not his. She was from an affair that Sharon had. The second daughter that Sharon and Mike had, her name was Denise. With the affair looming over Mike and, and Sharon, they decide, okay, we're going to move for a fresh start However, Mike says that they moved because Sharon was slutting around and it was bad reputation for him. However, Sharon maintains that it was the church that Mike was a minister over that actually voted to replace him. They didn't really like him very much. And that was why the family had to relocate. Either way, whatever. The family relocates to Rocky Ford, Colorado in 1976. The new church congregation was definitely taken back by Sharon's appearance and I will tell you why Sharon loved to push the limits on her dress code, especially for being a minister's wife. Her clothes were extremely tight, really low necklines. Her blouse was always in button, just one button too revealing super short shorts. She left very little to the imagination. And remember, she had a great figure. So Sharon decides as soon as they moved for their fresh start that she's going to prowl for a new man. And the way she was going to find this new man is she actually went through the files of church members and looked for a man that was pretty set up financially. She was looking at church members jobs, what assets they had. And that is how she came across Dr. Perry Nelson. See, Perry was married with a daughter at the time. And when Sharon set eyes on him though, she dug her claws into him. He did not stand a chance and it would ultimately cost him his life. According to a friend of Perry's in an episode of Fatal Vows, Perry was not super happy in his marriage. His wife was really nice, but I think that she was super reserved and they just didn't have a a good connection, you know? So when Sharon came around Her and her husband, Mike, actually went to dinner at the Nelson's house. Sherry got a little too flirty-flirty with Perry. Now, no one would say anything when Sharon got really flirty just because people were used to it, I think. But, I mean, Perry definitely picked up the vibe, and that is how their affair started. She threw out the line, and he he bit the bait, y'all. So... Sharon and Perry start an affair and Perry eventually has Sharon come to work as an assistant at his private optometry office. See, Perry's an optometrist. He's an eye doctor. And that way him and Sharon could be together all the time and it would be a lot easier for them to like sneak away and have rendezvous and all that. Now, Mike and Perry's wife, Julie, are literally none the wiser. They have no idea that their spouses are having an affair. In fact, when other people in town picked up on the fact that Perry and Sharon were likely having an affair, they tried to have a one-on-one with Mike because he was their pastor and he just, you know, they thought it would be better if he knew, but he refused to believe them. Um, Eventually though, Sharon and Perry just came out to their spouses and told them that they wanted to get divorced because they were in fact having an affair and wanted to be together. And as soon as Harry's wife, Julie, found out, she decided then and there that no matter what, she was going to get her life together and she was going to move to California. She's done with Perry. She's done with it. That was just ah, end of the road for her. Now, Mike, on the other hand, he does not want to lose Sharon and he begs and pleads her to not leave him. In fact, he will not let her take the girls just to make it that much harder. Completely unsure what to do. Sharon actually goes on a two-week getaway to Texas where she has intense sessions of counseling and therapy with the church, either like counselor or a psychologist from her church. I don't know. But either way, after the two weeks, she ultimately decided that she did want to go home to be with Mike and her girls and she goes back home. She says that she only did it because she felt really guilty about leaving her daughter's. Perry ends up going home just by default though Um, and wanting a fresh start Mike decides to get another job in a different state and their family moves. Mike forbids Sharon for ever speaking with Perry and she obliged and never spoke with Perry just like Mike asked her not to but Perry and Sharon eventually start thinking about each other and they start passing messages back and forth through Perry's assistant they didn't talk to each other but they sent little secret messages one day Perry sends Sharon a music box and that gesture made Sharon decide that she did in fact want to get divorced and to be with Perry so Sharon goes back To Colorado she takes the girls with her and they move into Sharon's sister's house Judy and this was in Colorado not too far from Perry and this just gave Sharon a place to stay while they worked everything out Mike was not a happy camper and he for sure was not gonna let Sharon go and damn sure not gonna take the two girls with her so he stormed over to Judy's and long story short Sharon did not put up too big of a fight for her daughters she tells Mike fine take the girls they had a little bit of a court battle but mike was ultimately the custodial parent of both the girls and with him getting a new job in arizona sharon ended up only visiting with her girls like a few times a year she she didn't have um, custody of them as julie said she would do she loaded up her and perry's daughter Lori, and the two moved to california Perry did have partial custody of his daughter, Laura, and they had a much tighter relationship than Sharon did with her daughters, but I don't quite know the extent. Sharon immediately moved right into Perry's house once all the kids and the spouses were out of the way, and she went right back to work in Perry's office for business as usual. But you guys, this was not good for business, okay? Let's not forget, Sharon and Perry met at church. Both were longtime married and members of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Sharon was a minister's wife, and Perry was a well-known member of the local congregation. The affair was known about all over town. People were not impressed by it, and they ultimately got kicked out of the church. But they didn't care. July 1st, 1977, the couple got married and then shortly after bought a home. Nothing big and fancy, just a starter home. She wanted something away from the house that Perry shared with Julie. She didn't want to live in another woman's home. Once Sharon locked down Perry, oh y'all, she was out spending all his money, all his money, every. Every damn dollar, probably even the change jars. And if Sharon wanted something, she was going to get it. She was going to get it. Here is how bad she was about spending money. Perry had a longtime office lady and she'd worked for Perry like well over 10 years. She stayed with him through the entire affair, the entire divorce. And then one day she goes to cash her check and she couldn't because Perry didn't have the money in his account to cover her payroll. So she goes back to work of course like business as usual perry was like oh just give me some time and got her the money so she keeps working for him and she goes in the office one day and she sees a blingy ass ring on perry's finger it was a ring that cost over a thousand dollars another time while they were practically bankrupt sharon bought her daughter a 400 stereo and this is just like the kind of stuff that she would do Well, then one day she tops that by buying a brand new car and didn't even run it by Perry first. That's the kind of shit Sharon would be doing. That's the kind of money she'd be spending. So in 1977, Sharon gets pregnant and Perry is over the moon and thrilled. And their little boy is born on March of 1978. Now is a good time to mention that until Sharon and Perry had a child together, Sharon got along really well with Perry's daughter, Lori. When it came to Sharon and all the girls, her two daughters and Perry's daughter as well, Sharon wasn't like a mom, okay? She wasn't a soggy, boring stepmom. Sharon was like a girl best friend. And she'd been buying Lori alcohol behind Perry's back for a few years. But once Sharon and Perry had their own child... Sharon did everything that she could to put a big wedge between Perry and his daughter and Lori was about 17 when this happened and Lori said that she was like partying a little bit too much and she ends up getting in some trouble at school and Sharon encouraged Perry to beat Lori's ass with a belt which he did. And she basically encouraged him to cut her off. She was a troublemaker, she was no good, and Perry did whatever Sharon said, so he literally draws this big wedge between himself and Lori at sherry's command. Then, in nineteen eighty, a few things happened: One, Sherry and Perry have another child, a little girl, and they decide to build a home. They built a beautiful home in the mountains in a very rural area at the top of at the top of the hill. Um, It was really, really nice, but it was so rural. You actually couldn't get phone services and they couldn't get their own well water for some reason um, for running water. So they had to get buckets of water from the neighbor's house, which is really crazy to me because everyone says the house was so nice. Listen, I don't care. I'm not, I'm not going to fetch water at the neighbor's house and I'm not going to not have at least a damn landline in 1980. That would scare me. So The house was on top of a hill, and Sharon named the property Roundhouse. And once again, Sharon decided it is time to prowl for a man. Who does she find? None other than Perry's best friend, Buzz. Okay, Buzz was a wealthy rancher and a longtime friend of Perry's, but that didn't stop him from stealing Perry's wife. Um, I would say Sharon stole Buzz, right, from Perry. Now, Sharon didn't just have an affair with Buzz. She actually broke up with Perry moved in and wanted to get a divorce. Perry, just like Mike, he didn't want a divorce, okay? So this is when Perry's life just starts to fall apart. He's a totally different person than the Perry that Sharon first met. He's angry. He's a heavy drinker. He's drinking even at work sometimes. He's in hundreds and thousands of dollars of debt and he's losing more and more of his business from people as time goes on. Then, as if things couldn't get any worse, Sharon gets pregnant by Buzz. And what does Buzz do? Buzz kicked her out. And she tried to go crawling back to Perry, but Perry was like, dude, I am not going to take care of Buzz's baby. Um, No, I don't think so. So Sharon goes to live in like a really shitty apartment. It was $90 a month I think and Perry ultimately thinks it over and he agrees to take Sharon back on the condition that she gets an abortion which he pays for and she goes through with at five months pregnant. Perry takes her back and life goes on. The whole buzz affair by the way in total lasted about seven months. But Sharon and Perry ultimately get back together and everything seems fine until Sharon meets the man at the bottom of the hill. His name was Gary Adams and people often refer to his property as The Shack. He was not a fabulous or wealthy man, which was really surprising. Um, he was actually a carpenter and he only worked as much as he had to to get by. He was married to a woman named Nancy. She was a waitress and together they had two small children. But despite the fact that Gary was married and poor, Sparks flew between him and Sharon. In fact, Sharon has been described to consider Gary as her soulmate, the only man that she's actually ever connected with. Um, And it's October of 1982 that they spark up an affair. And they kind of decide they're going to have this affair while he's at a Halloween party that Sherry and her husband Perry are hosting at their house, Roundhouse. So... Anyway, the first couple times that Sharon and Gary meet up, um, to have sex, Gary actually can't get hard, which I thought that was kind of funny. And it just made me wonder, like, why did they try to force this thing so hard? And I guess they said they had chemistry, but eventually they do get to bumping uglies. And in between that, Sharon makes a lot of claims about Perry to Gary (laughs) that rhymes, When they were together, she would tell him that Perry was really mean and abusive. And now y'all know, y'all know where this is heading. Sherry and her mountain man lover, Gary, literally have nothing in common but sex. And in between their rendezvous, they plot to kill Perry and make it look like an accident. Um, In July of 1983, Perry had an optometry convention, which was four hours away. And this was the perfect time for, for, for Gary to go through with killing Perry. So this was what was planned between Gary and Sharon, and this is what took place. Gary asked Perry if he could catch a ride with him to the convention because he needed to meet up with someone who was actually selling a gun in the Denver area. And Perry says, yeah, I'll give you a ride. So then Gary tells his wife, Nancy, that he's going to be at poker night at his buddy's house. And it's going to be a really late night. So not to wait up. Then he drops his personal vehicle off at the mechanic shop to have the brakes repaired and makes his way to Perry's house. I got to say, this is actually not a bad plan. And then Gary called his friend in Denver and he says, hey, I need you to pick me up at a very specific Underpass that he was going to be nearby. So I think his friend was kind of his friend had to have known what he was doing. That's just my opinion. Now, reports vary, but while Perry and Gary are driving to the convention one night in July of 1983, when either Gary suggested that they pull the car over to sleep or Gary asked Perry to pull over so that he could go pee, I'm not really sure, but either way, Perry pulls the car over and both of the men get out. There is a river nearby and Perry's just kind of chilling when Gary looks around and finds a fairly good sized rock and just sneaks up to Perry and bashes him in the head with it. But Perry doesn't just like go unconscious like Gary thought he would. No, Perry starts fighting for his life and the men are now fighting in the water and they're getting deeper and deeper into the stream. And Gary is now holding Perry's head underwater, trying to drown him. But then the current sweeps Perry away from Gary and down the river. So Gary just gets out of the water and he's very worried. He has no idea if Perry is dead or alive and what to do. So he just decides okay, I'm just going to hope that Perry's dead and I'm going to finish what I started. The plan was originally for Gary to knock Perry unconscious and then drown him in the water and put his dead body into his own car and run his car off the road into a gushing river. So it would look like it was an accident and that he drowned. But when that did not pan out, Gary decided to still run the car off the road and into the river. And that way, maybe Perry did die and it would still look like some sort of accident, right? So... Gary starts the car, he gets in it, and he jumps out when the car was going at about 20 miles per hour when he ran it off the road. Then Gary's friend gives him a ride and he makes it back home as if nothing ever happened. When Perry didn't show up to the convention and never made it home, Sharon didn't really even seem that concerned about it to anybody around her. His wife was like, huh, that's weird, and didn't really seem to care. And she actually starts selling as much of Perry's things as she could. She even puts his optometry business on the market before they could find his body. His car was found and everybody had different theories, right? Like there was rumors flying all around about Perry once his car was found, but his body wasn't in it. So some people thought he was murdered. Some people actually thought he faked his death just to start over. And some thought this whole thing was a scheme That him and Sharon were running for insurance money because everybody kind of knew Perry was getting into financial trouble. Meanwhile, Gary ends up leaving his wife for Sharon, okay? And he moves up on the hill with her. And people are shocked. But this did not work out well because, like I said before, all Gary and Sharon had in common was sex. Other than that, they just bickered all the time. So Gary goes back to Nancy. And Sharon goes back to Buzz. But this is short-lived again because next thing you know, Gary is leaving his wife Nancy again. And Sharon breaks up with Buzz and the lovers are living back at Sharon's house. This goes on over and over and over for years. Okay, they break up, get back together, break up, get back together, go back to Buzz, go back to her own house. Gary goes between Nancy and Sharon. It's crazy. Then August 14th of 1984, Perry's remains are found and his death is ruled an accident. Um, at this point, his body had been exposed for so long that there wasn't anything to indicate it wasn't a car accident where his car went into the river. Right. And there was nothing that indicated homicide. There was no obvious like gunshot or anything like that. So. Sharon did not hold any sort of service for Perry when his body was recovered, but she did get him ruled dead as soon as possible and did the paperwork to collect all the life insurance in full. All in all, Sharon had between four and six policies three of which Perry didn't know about, and it all totaled $400,000. She gifted Gary 50000 because he killed Perry, and then she starts blowing through that money, y'all. Okay, she's getting her nails, her hair, she's got clothes, shoes, jewelry, gifts, vacations, and even a fur coat. So what does she do? She shops for a new man because she needs more money. Sharon first tried to marry Buzz, Um, They had a wedding ceremony that was not legally binding and shortly after she tried to get Gary to kill Buzz but he was like dude I can't kill Buzz it's way too soon for me to kill anybody and Sharon was like fine. So she meets a different man his name was Harry Russell and at this point Sharon is going between Buzz, Harry Russell, and her mountain man lover Gary. Okay she's just she's just sleeping with everyone however Sharon and Gary are like, okay, you know what? I'm done playing games. We've been we've been doing this back and forth, off and on thing for years now. Let's move away. Let's move to Denver together and let's get married. So it's now 1986, by the way. Um, it's been three years since Perry was murdered, but only two years since his body was recovered. So Sharon and Gary find a rent house, they plan a wedding date, and they actually move to Colorado the day before they get married and are able to move into their new rent house they stay in a hotel but when sharon woke up she found gary was not there because gary ultimately decided to go back home to his wife nancy gary said it was really hard for him to leave the mother of his kids like he just didn't want to didn't want to do it he always felt really guilty so he'd always go back sharon though is like screw it And on her, what was supposed to be wedding day, she decides, you know, I'm going to live and I'm going to stay in Denver. And she moves into the house that her and Gary were actually supposed to live in together. And Sharon starts her life over and she starts going by the nickname Cher. It is now the spring of 1987, yeah, 1987, when Cher starts prowling for a new man. And this time she hits the personal ads in the newspaper That was a thing then because, you know, there isn't MySpace and Facebook and online dating, really. So Glenn Harrison, he had put a personal ad in the newspaper. He was a military veteran and a firefighter. He'd previously been married for 22 years and had two kids, one boy, one girl. Both were practically grown. And he was a very, very nice man that was very well liked and respected by everybody. Glenn Harrison had been devastated when his wife divorced him and he was just getting like back into the dating scene. A lot of his other single friends had recently taken up with new partners and he wasn't having any luck until he met Cher and they hit it off immediately. I think Glenn was just happy to have somebody so full of life because she was described to be like really vivacious and so attractive and interesting into him he didn't really even I think think it over too much because he was just so eager and excited for what could be really sad like definitely she was taking advantage of somebody so after a very short time of dating Sharon and her kids actually move in with Glenn and a few of Glenn's friends and family met Sharon and let's just say um, some found her really vivacious fun exciting Um, enjoyable to be around, but a lot were less than impressed. It didn't matter though because Cher had her spell on Glenn. He was smitten and his friends were basically happy just to see Glenn happy. So they were willing to deal with Sharon and life went on. However, one day Glenn got really sick and Cher was nowhere to be found. So he had to call his ex-wife for a ride to the hospital and Cher had been gone at least one day and one night. Glenn had no idea where she was. And when she finally showed up at the hospital the next day, Glenn asked her where she had been. And she was like, oh, I was out with an old friend. And then she says to Glenn, like, you're okay if we see other people, right? And Glenn was shocked. He was definitely not okay with that. But he awkwardly agreed to it because he didn't want to lose Sharon. I mean, Cher. So it's no surprise the old friend Cher was with was Gary and her affair with Gary was back on. So Cher decides that she's actually going to go between her house in the mountains and Glenn's house. It's a really far distance. It's like a little over three hours, I think. And Glenn did not love this idea. So Glenn basically would have to go between his house during the week when he had work to Cher's house out in the woods three hours away but he was willing to do the commute when Cher decided to stay at her house then one day Cher breaks up with Glenn and decides that she's gonna move back to her house for good she's not gonna come stay out at Glenn's house at all and Glenn was so sad and this is when he was like damn it I love that woman and I want to marry her So he calls her up, despite his friends urging him not to, despite his friends being like, yo, dude, you need to move on. He calls Cher up and he asks her for just one more night together. And she relucted, but ultimately went to see him and they made up. And a very, very short time later, Glenn and Sharon were married at the courthouse June 2nd of 1988. After they were married, though, Sharon still refused to move to Glenn's house or to sell her roundhouse. So Glenn kept his house and he went back to staying at Sharon's during the weekends and commuting back when he had work to stay at basically his own house while he was working, which is crazy. But we know that while Glenn was gone, Sharon was hooking up with Gary. And just like she did with Perry, she would make up really bad things about Glenn. She said, Glenn's mean to me and the kids. And Glenn is so controlling over me. And blah, 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 blah. So then Monday, November 15th, 1988, Sharon tells Gary she wants him to kill Glenn. And she wants him to kill Glenn before the holidays approach. Because she doesn't want to see Glenn's damn mom. Which is so shitty. Like... Why would she not let his family have one last holiday with him? Like, seriously, how do people not think about stuff like that? Together, Sharon and Gary plot the murder just like they did with Sharon's other husband, Perry. And Sharon draws Gary a map of Glenn's house, gives him a spare key, and tells him where he can find the gas cans in Glenn's garage. She told Gary to make damn sure That Glenn is dead and that she wanted Glenn's wedding ring. He didn't wear it a lot and he usually left it in the bedroom on the dresser. So three days later, November 18th, 1988, Sharon makes a surprise visit at one of her friends' house and she stayed at her friend's house unexpectedly and watched two movies, not leaving till well after 9 p.m. that night. She did this so that she could have an alibi. Meanwhile, Gary parked his truck a mile from Glenn's house and walked there. He was at Glenn's by 830. And Gary decided to take the 30 minutes that he knew he had until Glenn came home to familiarize himself with the layout of the house. And while doing so, he grabbed Glenn's wedding ring and it was exactly where Sharon said it would be. Gary brought with him an 18-inch pipe, I don't know if it was lead or steel, and a twenty-two caliber handgun. The idea was that he would bash Glenn in the head with the pipe and make the death look like an accident, just like he did with Perry. But the gun was in case he couldn't overpower Glenn physically. Now, when Glenn got home at 9 p.m. that night, he was met by Gary, who immediately attacked Glenn and hit him in the head two times with the pipe. However, Gary was expecting to hit him in the head with this pipe twice, and Glenn did just fall unconscious, Right but he wasn't so Gary had to get out his gun and he shot Glenn twice in the head he wanted to make sure it looked like Glenn had an accident but since he had shot him Gary decided he had to go with his backup plan which was to make it look like a really bad robbery Gary piled up a bunch of clothes around Glenn grabbed a change jar Glenn had in his I think it was in his master bedroom closet I can't remember though I cannot remember where the change jar was and then Gary dumped the change out All around Glenn's body. Then he had to go grab the gasoline and pour it all over Glenn's now deceased body. To give himself time to escape before the house caught fire, Gary lit a cigarette and put it at the end of a matchbook. So that as the cigarette slowly burned, it would get closer and closer to the book of matches. Then he escaped through a basement window. Gary then ran back to his truck, which was about a mile away, and waited until he heard sirens, but like several minutes passed and he wasn't hearing any sirens, so he panics and he actually runs back to Glenn's house to double check that it caught on fire. He says that he lifted up the garage door a bit and he saw black smoke, so then he hurried up and ran back to his truck again, like, oh my God, what an idiot. Gary gets away, he goes back home. However, when investigators look into Glenn's death, it was really suspicious. I mean, they were able to determine that this fire was started with an accelerant, gasoline, and they could tell that Glenn had been shot two times in the head. There's change surrounding him. Obviously, this is suspicious. So police learn everything they can about Sharon, and they are convinced that it may not be her who did it because she did have an alibi she knows who did it but she holds up really really well when they speak to her and like I said she had an alibi however the police want to talk to her again on either like November 23rd or 24th remember the crime itself took place the 18th And the second time they asked to talk to her, she was not holding up very well under the pressure. And she ultimately caves and says that she will tell the police everything. But she wasn't going to tell them then and there because she said something to the effect that, like, these walls have ears or, like, these walls have eyes or something like that. And she... Takes a pretty long drive. In fact, she drove so long, like well over 30 minutes, the police actually have her pull over so they can make sure they're really going to like have a confession. And she's like, Yeah, 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 come on. And she takes him to a pizza hut, which I know people think that's a strange place, but remember, she has two. She has three kids with her. She has her older daughter, Rochelle, with her when she goes to talk to the police and her two kids that she had with Perry. So they're not older children. So I think that's why she chose Pizza Hut. It was like comfortable and an easy place to have kids in there. And she gives a full confession from start to finish, dating all the way back to the death of Perry. And she just said that she was tired of the lie. She was tired of lying, y'all. Thank God. Goodness. So Sharon and Gary are both charged with two counts of first degree murder to which they both make a plea deal and they plead guilty. They are sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 20 years. However, I think they ran these charges consecutively because Sharon isn't eligible parole until as late as 2029 and Gary 2030. Gary didn't want to plead guilty at first, but for one, Sharon was going to testify in his trial against him because she'd already pled guilty. And for two, Gary had told a cellmate while he was in jail that he hid the gun he shot Glenn with under the second step of his porch and that person turned him turned him in and guess what? The gun was hidden under the second shelf of his porch. Gary goes ahead and he pleads guilty and he says that he did it for love um, Sharon paid him 50000 for killing Perry, but he killed Glenn for free. Yeah, he said he did it just for love. Okay. All of Perry's children sued the insurance companies that paid Sharon the life insurance policies and the death of Perry. And apparently the insurance companies had found a lot of circumstantial evidence in their own investigation into the death of Perry. But they did not disclose any of that information to the police. And what is awesome about this is in the summer of 1996, the Nelson children won the settlement money plus interest. And it was divided equally among all of Perry's children, which I thought was like a pretty, pretty good thing, you guys. So anyway, that is the story of Sharon Nelson Harrison and how she is the total evil seductress. Okay, guys, I'll talk to you next week. Bye. Oh, by the way, please leave me a review. Give Storytime Slayer some love on Facebook and Instagram with a like and a follow. And I did open up my listener support. I'm kind of dabbling with the idea of doing a Patreon, which is like um for a small amount, like 99 cents a month, I would provide an extra episode Or I don't know, I've been bouncing around some other ideas too, like maybe starting a private Facebook group where we can talk open and candidly about like different opinions on these stories. And, you know, maybe if the person's guilty, not guilty, what there's, how their sentencing was fair or unfair, um, crazy things about the crime, what we think about serial killers, things like that. So anyway, get on social media and let me know if you like any of these ideas and I will talk to you later. Bye.